0: This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. Nan Schwartz. (laughs)
1: I, first of all, I just want to thank everybody for coming. First of all, I there's I feel like that old show, This Is Your Life, and um, a lot of people from my past are here that are uh, that performed on a lot of my scores, like Mike Lang and Ron Aston, and of course Richard. And I I can't see, so please don't fault me if I don't see if I don't say your name because I, the lights are bright up here, but. Um, Anyway, uh, you guys have all made my music possible. And uh, like he said, working with live musicians is where it's at because you guys bring something to the music that isn't there on the paper and it can't be realized with uh, electronics. It's the live playing that makes the difference. So, anyway, thanks for all for coming. And uh, you've all heard the rest of my
2: story. So, I'm going <laughs> to. Well, no, I think that uh, let's just go. I, uh... You, you were so fortunate to grow up in a family where uh, family friends would come by like Billy May and uh, Nelson Riddle and great arrangers that helped uh, define a certain era from the swing era. You're truly a child of the swing era by, by, from parents that helped make it. And I thought that maybe you could just talk about um, your early influences, like how did that uh, shape what you listened to and the role of Peter Matz and various yeah. people, yeah.
1: I. Uh, my parents played a lot of good music in the house, and that made a big difference in my life, I think. Um, going, my dad, being a sax player, I listened to a lot of uh, Paul Desmond and Stan Getz, and a big uh, iconic record in our house was Bill Evans with Symphony Orchestra, and that was uh, uh, arranged by Klaus Ogerman, who has been my big influence in my writing. And uh, so, of course, I was a typical kid that listened to the pop music of the day, but I really gravitated toward... That kind of music. And um, uh, so I didn't really know anything about or, or want to pursue that as a career, but I did. And also, particularly because my parents were so successful, it was intimidating to me in a way. And I played piano and I did a lot of singing as a kid. Um, I was able to sight read music, so I uh, was hired professionally on uh, TV shows and movies and things like that. And when. Uh, I remember writing a letter to my mom, and I talked about this at the ASC- ASMAC uh, birthday celebration, anniversary celebration. Um, I used to think that singers were great, and, and but then it, I realized years later, it was the arrangers that made the singers great. And uh, like, as a little kid, my parents took me to the Julie Andrews show, and there was Ian Fraser conducting. And it was like, I didn't know at the time that it was that music that was great. It was, she was great, but it was the arranging that was it. And Peter Matz, uh, one of the early records I remember, was hearing, my mom was on the road with Danny Kay in Las Vegas for, for a month, and I was very homesick, and I wrote her a letter, dear mom, I just heard the greatest singer and the greatest song, and you got to go out and buy it, of course. They had record stores then, so she did go out and buy it because she wanted to know what I was talking about. It was People, Barbra Streisand, her first record. And I didn't know anything about Peter Matz, but I saw his name on there and registered somehow. So anyway, listening to all this good music, and um, uh, I figured there's really no career opportunities for me to go into music because I wasn't really a driven pianist that would sit in my room and practice all day long, like Dave Grusin and Artie Keane were over at the house as guests, and th- that was way too good for me. And um, as a singer, I, my, when my mom was doing it, they would sing live with the orchestra, and that was thrilling to me. But as technology changed, singers would go in and put on a headphone, and I thought, That's, this is no fun for me. So I thought singing's out, piano's out, nothing for me in music, and I went off and got a degree in television production, Um, in college, graduated, went out and started working in the uh, production end of things on various variety shows, and um, thought I was going to do that for the rest of my life until a very um, big turning point in my life came. I broke my leg skiing, and uh, I broke it in five places and was laid up and incapacitated for nine months, could not get out of bed, and I couldn't do anything except I could read and do needlepoint and... Uh, stuff like that so after a while I got kind of bored and I started writing some vocal arrangements because the family all sang and I have perfect pitch and I thought I don't need to go to the piano. I can just do this at home and, I mean from my bed <laughs> and so I I just dabbled with that just for fun and around that time a family friend um, Gilda Anderson one of the skylarks took me out to lunch. She said why aren't you writing scripts? You have you have connections in the television industry I said, well, I don't have any big stories to tell. She said, well, what's your big dream? And I said, um, well, I don't know why this came about this particular day, but I said, you know, I, I think I would have liked to be a film composer because uh, another big influential moment was when my dad played on the Sandpiper, Johnny Mandel, and brought that record home. And I just was just enamored with the music from that. And and uh, it it was very uh, powerful and uh, to me. And so I said, I would have liked to be a film composer like Johnny Mandel, but it's too late. I'm a woman. I've already graduated from college and it's over now. And she said, well, uh, you know, why don't you study privately and um, uh, and why don't you become the first woman? And so I got all fired up, walked away on my crutches and <laughs> got home and made a few calls. And everybody said, you got to go study with this guy, Albert Harris, because he, stu- he taught orchestration. And he was the guy at the time, so I went and studied with him. I went over there on crutches for the first time, and uh, he after a few lessons, he said, "You know, you're going to make it kid." because I understood the trombone positions. Uh, and after a little while i I was able to do some ghostwriting for some television shows. Uh, but at the time the the style of in TV music was um uh, Kind of atonal and the twelve tone system, and I wasn't particularly—I didn't have an affinity toward that. So, but arranging, of course, was my first love, and uh, I remember singing at the Cher show, Share Show, S H uh, A R E, one year, and hearing this killer chart on something, and by now I knew it was arranging—that that was the reason that everything was great—and I said, "Well, who wrote that?" Of course, on the on the chart it said Quincy Jones. Well, everybody, I said, you know. Quincy Jones wrote that. And they all went, no, no, that's Billy Byers. Because everybody that was in the know knew who Billy Byers was. And he it was a, it was like a Count Basie chart for Frank Sinatra or something like that. So I thought, I want to study with Billy. So I called him repeatedly. And he kept saying, I don't teach, I don't teach. And finally, I wore him down. And he said, OK, come on out here. And uh, I spent you know the next year with him, apprenticing, watching him write in ink on onion skin paper. Which uh, is not something I've ever dared to do. Drunk? Uh, no, I'm. <laughs> uh, no,
2: I never do it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, but he was great, and he. Uh, I don't even know what I learned from him. Just I guess no fear. He had no fear, and he um, was just fast. And I'm not fast, but anyway, whatever. He he got me started, and then I started writing some arrangements for. Uh, Uh, Not arrangements film cues ghosting for some different people. I think Alan Ferguson was the first one and um, uh, But that was kind of fun too and someone told me about Mike Post. He always needed a lot of people to help him write and um, Am I going on too long? This is like one question. I'm just going on a run-on sentence (laughs) Uh, Mike Post was uh, needing people so I Called him up and he said, Yeah, come on over. And we, he put me to work on something. And of course, if you know me and you know Mike and you know our styles, you know that they would clash. Um, I tried to be as imitative of his style as I could be. And um, it was a tough thing because if, if he didn't like what I did, he, he really kind of berated me in front of the orchestra. And I was really kind of downtrodden at the time. Um, because I just felt like, oh, I guess I don't have what it takes, you know. Um, and just around that time, a great miracle happened. Mark Snow called on the phone. Oh, I heard you're really good. I need help. You know, and I went over and started working for Mark. And um, and that was so great because once I started working for Mark, he liked what I did, and then he encouraged me and kept working on different shows. Meanwhile, you know, I was building a reel and putting cues together and everything. And then... Um, Around that time, I met Pat Williams, and he was working on a TV show called *The Devlin Connection*. It was Rock Hudson's last television show before he passed away. And uh, t- Pat was very big in television and had lots of work. And I started orchestrating for him on that. And one week, he said, "Do you think you're ready to write an episode?" And I said, uh, "Yeah, I think I am." i kind of looked what, at what his style was on that show. And so he said, "Okay, write the next one." And I did. And um, I think my dad was in the orchestra on the session, so that was pretty significant. But anyway, after the session, it, it went really well, and the producers turned to Pat and said, wow, that's really good, uh, you know, congrats or something like that. And he said, well, I didn't write it, she did. And then he pointed over to me, and they kind of, as in Ron's words, the trout look, you know. <laughs> uh, and, the, you know, for all you women out there, the, the, what I'm trying to say is, A, I had a mentor that opened that door for me, because I don't, I'm not sure that the pro- producers would have taken a chance on me. I don't think they would have. But the fact that, um, that he had done it under his, you know, he, 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 I don't have to explain that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So they, they thought it was him, and it was me, and it sounds like a kind of a Hollywood story. But he then said, I don't want to do this show anymore. I have other work. Can Nan take it over? And they said yes. And I went on to do the rest of the series, got an Emmy nomination, and then started working under my own name and the rest is history. That's that chapter. (laughs) Pause. (laughs)
2: No, I think it's all. In- I think it's uh, very interesting. I do think that uh, the only thing I would try to chime in is that with Billy Byers, I what I recall. I mean, uh, I have another friend that studied with him. Is that uh, what was great about Billy is that he uh, stressed exactly how you tend to work. He taught like, um, like you actually work. Is that if you wanted to study an arrangement, you'd have to go go and uh, transcribe it, and then you would talk about it, and uh, he would look it over, and that it was always organic. It wasn't uh, something with a bunch of uh, rules or anything else and so that's the best training you can have is to apprentice with somebody that you learn like you're actually going to be doing it which is using your ears and uh solving problems and uh finding out what really sounds good and then learning that oh, uh what's this there so i think that i think is really great training
1: yeah i was uh, i would just add that it, it was Thad Jones and Mel Lewis charts that i was analyzing and they were really hard to take down but that was it was great training and even to this day, if there's somebody that I really like, you know, I'm sure this is sort of obvious to everyone, but if you hear something you like, analyze it, you know, check it out. What What is it that makes me like that? It even helps with producers when they give you a temp track and they say, we really like this. Well, what is it about it that you like, you know, because you really have to break it down into, you know, is it the rhythm? Is it the harmony? What is it?
2: So, sort of breaking tradition here, uh, I'd just like to say, with this sort of like Nan's influences, are there any questions right now that somebody might want to ask about Nan, of Nan, that were on what she's just said? Well, she said it all. I agree. I think that there's there's absolutely nothing else to say. Um, so, sure. Hey.
1: Uncle Bob. Oh, well, I wanted to talk about you a little bit, but go ask the question. Oh, thank you. Well, I will talk about that. But I did want to say one of my big influences, which I forgot to mention, very significantly. My parents gave me a uh, an acoustic guitar when I was probably 10 years old. And Jobim was the thing, you know. And I listened to so much Jobim music and fell in love. And I think that I still listen to that. I go on Pandora and type in the Jobim channel and listen to Jobim because... He is the greatest songwriter. His, his harmony and his melodies are just incredible. And I'm, I don't even know what he's saying lyrically. but um, So Uncle Bob, being the great uncle he was, taught me all the great voicings. And it wasn't like the dumb triads that everybody else was playing. These were like the hip, sophisticated Brazilian things where your fingers all twisted up there. And it sounded great. You know. And I was in the talent show at school playing How Insensitive, <laughs> <laughs> you know. I mean, you know, <laughs> so anyway, my songwriting, yeah, well, songwriting's sort of something I have done in the gaps between jobs, because I've found that um, there have been some gaps in my life where I wasn't working enough, and I didn't want to be out of touch with music, and I, it was something I could do, um, and uh, oddly enough, I... Uh, wrote some songs way back when, the ones Uncle Bob's referring to, and um, I played them for my then-husband, who was just kind of the average music lover. He wasn't a musician, so his response to the songs were, that doesn't sound like something I'd hear on the radio. And of course, you know, I I was devastated. But I had a Hispanic housekeeper at the time, and she was lingering in the doorway, and she came in and like, what's that? And I, the light bulb went on in my head. Oh, um, uh, the the Latin culture likes you know harmony and melody, and maybe I should kind of go in that direction. They ha- they hadn't uh, tried to emulate pop music quite yet, and so I started writing songs for the Spanish market, and um, that's the, those are the songs Uncle Bob's referring to. Although the one that you heard when they were playing originally, I had written for a Cagney and Lacey reunion movie. And um, in typical Hollywood form, they said, we want a Tony Bennett song in here. Oh, we can't afford it. Oh, uh, well, what can we do? And I said, uh, I'd like to try. Can I try? And so they said, uh, okay, you know, we'll give, give the film composer a, a try, figuring it wouldn't be any good. And had Barney Rosenzweig show up at Capitol. And uh, it didn't hurt that I had my dad's, my dad's picture on the wall and I could say, you know, my dad worked here and everything. He was impressed with that. And um, we had Michael D's, and we sang, he sang this song I wrote called All the Days. And uh, I wrote the lyrics. And I, I did it all in a day because I just was trying to get the gig, you know. And um, it ended up winning, I mean, getting nominated for an Emmy. And uh, it's still floating around out there. Tony Bennett still hasn't recorded it, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm proud of it. So that's my songwriting story. Yeah. Van.
0: You use a computer or pencil and paper?
1: Both, both, but uh I would like to say that I really use the pencil and paper. I mean, that's where it really all happens for me. Um no, I I it has, you know, it, I'm just finishing a job right now and of course they uh, they expect it to be turned in in a computer score they they you know and they don't have money for copying anymore so i've got to input it all in finale anyway eventually however i sketch it all out on with pencil and and, and it's is like extra work for me i sketch it all out in pencil cuz i would do want to work it out i want to look at it i want to think oh i did that there and i don't want to do that again there and with the computer it's just um much more difficult you got to keep printing pages and it's it's just i do the computer at the end, when I'm done with my sketch and I like it, I put it all on the computer, then I print it out, then I can make, fine tune it that way. Um, Well, certainly Johnny Mandel was the big, big one for me. Um, And John Williams, because I I just, my daughter, uh, being the uh, retro girl she is, uh, was interested in um, that old technology, a turntable. So I got mine out from the garage and to show her that I had one, and um, I got out all my records. And lo and behold, there's like boxes of film scores. So it turns out, I guess I did. I did listen to all the Jerry Goldsmith. I've got Patton, and I've got, you know, uh, I can't even think of the names. I've got so many of them. Papillon. Papillon, that's the one. I knew it was like a butterfly. Papillon, and and a patch of blue, and... uh, and some obscure ones too, even like the Red Pony, uh, Aaron Copeland, um, and of course all the John Williams stuff too. So yeah.
2: How did you get started in uh, in arranging? Because, you know, for people that haven't been in uh, Hollywood quite as long as I have and some of the rest of us, um, they they might only know your work as an arranger. And it's been quite extraordinary because I didn't uh, you arrange for the Boston Pops, and John called you to do that, and just uh, talk about how that's developed and what are some of the more interesting projects you've had as an arranger and how you think you've grown or or how you enjoy doing that.
1: Well, I should say that when I was um, getting started, I like I said, I wanted to be more of an arranger than a composer because the, the composing at the time was 12-tone oriented, and... Um, Henry Mancini was a family friend, thanks to my parents, and he took me aside and said, kid, don't be an arranger. There's no money in it. Go to composing. So I, you know, and he was right. (laughs) So I kind of went away from arranging for a while and did this whole uh, career in television and um, composing. And as things shifted uh, in the early to mid-90s, they stopped using... I don't have to tell you guys this they stopped using orchestras in television and so and they stopped making TV movies I was I had graduated to doing TV movies and then they just stopped making them and so there was less of that kind of work so um I don't know what the how the, how that dovetailed into my arranging but I started getting calls to do arrangements and um I started doing them and it was quite gratifying because once again the music was the most important thing as opposed to television where or film where the music is secondary to uh, or tertiary or whatever the word is to sound design and dialogue and everything else um, and you're also in arranging you're working with people that love music and I think a lot of times in films uh, the directors aren't of today aren't necessarily of the same sensibility about music that I am or they don't even like music so that sort of puts you at a disadvantage if you're doing, wanting to do that kind of work and making a statement or wanting to enjoy what you're doing. But anyway, my arranging, uh, um, I, I did this stuff for Natalie Cole. I, I did get a, an amazing phone call uh, about... I don't know how many years ago. I don't know six, seven, eight, nine years ago. Um, and this is, falls under the category of your life can change with a single phone call. I was sitting at my desk working on some project. I don't know what. The phone rings. It's this guy with a German accent saying, um, "Hey, I'm here from Germany for the Grammys, and I heard this record that you did, and I played it on my. I play it on my radio show. I have a radio show in Berlin, and I play it all the time. And uh, you know what?" And uh, I, I've got this other record I'm doing. I want you to work on it. And I didn't really know what to make of it. I said, Oh, yeah, okay, send it over, figuring. You know, usually when you say that, people don't remember to send it or it arrives two weeks later or something. Well, and an hour later, here was a record that showed up. It was this singer named Mark Murphy. And um, this record that this man who was calling was his name's Till Broner, he's a famous trumpet player in uh, Europe. He also produces, and he's a kind of a superstar over there. He's he was a judge on the X Factor. He's very handsome. He's he's just well known over there. And of course, I didn't know him, but uh, and he but he did have his own radio show. And the astounding thing is that he was playing a track on a record that I had done that was never even released. Um, he somehow got a hold of this, this track, and he liked it so much, and so he hired me. Uh, well, actually, I went to meet him that night at uh, Grace Restaurant. Where, I, where is Ian anyway? I keep referring to Ian Fraser. Yeah. No, e, not Freeburn Smith, Frazier. Okay. So anyway, so I was at Grace Restaurant, uh, owned by uh, Ian's son, and there was Till Broner, uh, and I met him, and we immediately hit it off. And so I had a glass of wine or two, and I he wanted me to write these arrangements for this record, and I, I had already agreed to do that. And I said, hey, uh, you know, are you, who's going to conduct? You, you're, are you bringing me to Berlin? And he said, well, let me get back to you on that. And like a, a day later, he uh, called me and said, yeah, you're coming to Berlin. So <laughs> I had never been there, and I thus began a, a new relationship in my professional life, and I've been going back and forth to Berlin since then, doing projects for him. And I just finished one uh, today on a film that he's, he's working on. And uh, unfortunately, I won't be able to go. But um, my mom's having a birthday, we're throwing a party so I can't go to Berlin. (laughs) That's not the reason, mom, don't feel guilty. That's not the reason. It wasn't in the budget for me to come this time. So anyway, um, but where am I going with this? Arranging for Till. Uh, So that became a, uh, yeah. um, Well, that's one of my my favorite arrangements, but I started working on this one album, Mark Murphy, and it, the piano. Here's here's what I'm getting to as far as approach. The pianist on this record is this guy named Frank Chestenier, who lives over there in in Cologne, Germany, and he's got he's just magnificent. I think Mike Lang, you probably know him. Um, he's he's very sparse, and he, every note is the right note, and so there was so much beauty there in what he had already played. It was just Piano and voice, and it was up to me to fill in the rest. And I just thought I'd, I just better stay out of the way, you know. I don't want to. I don't want to repeat what he did. I don't want to um, write too much or anything. So it, it gave me um, an opportunity to really step back instead of having to um, fill in all the colors. I really could be really sparse about it, and it developed a new linear style. You know, I going in the direction of Bill Holman, not quite there yet. <laughs> but uh, no, I love that. I love that, that what you do. Um, linear. That was, I had always been very chordal, but now I became linear. And um, it really worked well, and we did a couple more records, and, um, and I've been doing a lot of projects with Till and various things. So that's that story.
2: So any, qu- any questions from the audience about arranging before I ask my next question. Okay, Liz.
1: Yeah, that's another <laughs> the life serendipitous moment, yes. I was on a cruise um, with my then-husband, and there was a man on the, on the cruise who was a Warner Brothers executive, very big guy, named Jack Holzman. Well, everybody, there was only like 50 people on the cruise, if you can believe that. So by the time the week was over, we'd gotten to know everybody on the cruise except for Jack Holtzman, because Jack was a big Warner Brothers executive, and he didn't want to mingle with the, you know, all of us. So, you know, I, I got that vibe, and I stayed away from him. Well, then we were ready to come home, uh, fly home from the Bahamas or wherever we were, and um, uh, the plane was stuck on the tarmac for like f- six hours, we couldn't get off the plane, we couldn't do anything. So, you know, me, I, I just thought, now or never. So I just walked up to the front of the cabin and s- told him who I was. And uh, the next thing I know, he said, I have a project. I've been wanting to do this for years. I'm, you know, he discovered the doors. He, had, he started uh, uh, Asylum, uh, Electro Asylum Records. I mean, he was a big guy, but he, his secret yen was, you know, jazz. And he said, I've always wanted to do a jazz at the movies record. So I think you're the person, you know, can you send me a little demo? So as soon as we got back to land, I I sent him a demo and he hired me and we did, uh, I don't know, s- several records for him on that. Um, and another funny story about that is he said, you know, we're not going to uh, use union musicians on this. Of course, I was already working with professional musicians and I thought, oh, great, you know, I got to deal with all these... Uh, you know amateurs uh, that's going to be terrible and i show up and the the drummer was bernie dressel if you guys all know him from from burn uh, don't now don't report this to the union that they did a dark date back in the, whenever this was but anyway yeah it was bernie dressel and the piano player was bill conliffe and he was just amazing and I, I was just blown away by all of the musicians matt harris played piano um, R- uh, roberto valley and uh the other guy who's gone on to be a big record guy, Mark Portman, he was one of the keyboard players. But anyway, I was so surprised that the musicianship was so great, and uh, it was a lot of fun to do that. I didn't get to work with a big orchestra. I had to do synth strings on that, but it was fun. And they, we did a Christmas album that I still play a lot every year.
2: Well, let me ask you, while, while we have you here, um, since you're one of the few examples of this, What's it like being a woman in Hollywood? You've talked about that a little bit, but that it does seem as though things have opened up somewhat, I guess, in the last decade or so. But do you think that uh, opportunities have changed uh, for the young women coming to town today? Or do you have advice? Or or just your thoughts in general?
1: Um, I don't think it's... Realistically, I don't think it's changed that much since I was uh, first started, to tell you the truth. Um, I think because, particularly in films today, the studios are still run by, uh, you know, white males and they are even more so making movies that are like uh, superhero movies and action movies and they don't think of women to do those kinds of things. Um, So I think it's been hard for women and and I, I think the statistics are saying that there's not as many... Uh, women directors as there once were even. However, that said I know that this year at Sundance um, they made a big point of saying that 50% of the directors at Sundance were women. So I think the independent film world uh, is coming along quite well and uh, opportunities for women. I spoke with someone uh, before the luncheon here that's a USC graduate and she was saying how she was the only student in her only female in her graduating class that was a woman, Uh, that's redundant. Only female in her graduating class of film scoring students. And uh, But the important thing I think is that there's all those directors then that know who she is and they're all coming up. And I think uh, based on what my kids, my impression of my kids and their uh, indifference to ethnicities and gender and all that, I think that it's very promising for women coming up I don't know when it's going to happen, but I think it's going to happen eventually, and we just have to keep. As I told Conrad before we left, you know, I, I, if you, any of you have read Atlas Shrugged, you know this. The plot line is that uh, the women—not the women, all the all the great minds of the country decide to—they uh, they're not getting their way, and they they go on strike and shut the whole country down. And I think if women just decided to stop cooking and doing laundry, we could shut the whole town down. And uh, get our way, uh, and he said, "Yeah, and stop changing diapers too and And I said, "Yeah, but that was the fun part, and I, I mean that being a mom is like been one of my best things, but um anyway i I think that women need to be more united and cohesive, and I think we could get farther along. I think this is a great start, you know, just being I'm really glad to be here, and, and if I'm a, a representative of women, I'm glad to be. Pinka is here, too. She's, she's out there doing it, and um, there are other women doing it, and we all have to kind of stick together, I think, because um, if we're trying to be competitive with one another, we're not helping our cause at all. Um, so that's, that's my thought about women.
2: Yes, in the back.
1: I think everybody's story is so different, and it's hard to say that there's one path to follow. Obviously, that that's just what worked out for me. Um, I know that there's plenty of people, maybe some in this room, who have worked for Hans Zimmer, and um, and we all know that some of those people have been launched from that. So that's a that's a route to take if you can get in there, or if you even that appeals to you. I know it's really kind of uh grueling for a long time <laughs> that apprenticeship period so i don't know if it's if it appeals to anybody uh but obviously always a mentor i think i think other composers have a sensitivity to how hard it is to start and and they are able to open doors for us that um that like i said those producers that wouldn't have given me a chance but pat did so um, I think that's always a good way to go. As far as women mentoring women, um, uh, you know, I, I, I'm happy to talk to you. I think I, I, no guy has ever come to me and said, help me get started. You know, I, I don't know what I'd say. I'd probably go say, go talk to a guy. I don't know. But, <laughs> you know, you guys have it so easy. You know, there's plenty of guys you can go talk to. But um, anyway, uh, I, I would be happy to talk to you or help you in any way.
2: And I would just simply say, uh, uh, sitting out here again, uh, Panka's name has come up uh, a few times. Panka, I know, has helped so many people, uh, both male and female, and she's taken so many people under her wing, and uh, she is, uh, uh, she's just been great as far as getting people launched and being good to them and teaching them the ropes, and particularly in a new environment where when uh, Nan, if, if I can just take a second, um, when Nan was getting started, as a, as a man I used to uh, work for a great deal, uh, John Neufeld used to say, he, he said, uh, Oh, Conrad, uh, 25 years ago, the king the keys to this kingdom were the ability to sit at a table and overnight with a pencil and a piece of paper to write a score and turn it in the next day and have it sound great. And those were the keys that, Nan had great, thanks to her great background. That's the kind of keys that those were the tools that you needed then. 25, 30 years hence, this certainly has changed. I mean, certainly no one sits with a pencil and paper and no one sits at a table. Someone sits hunched over in an ergonomically correct chair in front of a keyboard saying, how about this? Send that off, see if that's approved. And so the way of how the business is structured and what's demanded of you, um, have changed, but in a certain way, I think that there's a demand, there's even a more of a demand for, uh, for help at all kinds of levels. And I think as far as if you're not, um, if you're accepting of what's offered you, I think that there are a lot of composers, whether or not it's just doing people's laybacks to doing people's MIDI transcriptions to, as one famous composer that worked at Hans's that I know it started out doing, it sounds like a joke, it's not a joke. He started by making coffee. The one I like best is one, one fellow, they said, oh, we need a messenger. Do you have a car? And he said, yes. And they said, well, deliver this. So he went out immediately and got a bus schedule <laughs> and started taking a bus because he did not have a car. But he knew enough about Hollywood to not tell somebody that. So I think, yes. Just it, say yes. Just, just say yes. And I think this is still a mentor. It, ideally, this is still a mentorship uh, business, an apprenticeship business they've changed over the past few years, but um, seek out Panka Kuneva here. And I'm sure that Uh-oh. she- Oh, you're gonna they're, be they're, sorry he
1: said that. But no, <laughs> I, I
2: say that because uh, Penka is just one of the most uh, wonderful open people I know and has been very helpful. She's the Hans Zimmer of women for 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 helping people.
1: So. Yeah, now the Hollywood should treat her like the Hans Zimmer that she is yeah, and give her that's a That's right, job. she's a great
2: composer. Well, in any case, see, see her. Yeah, when did you first hear Klaus's oh. music, and when did you know about him as a composer? And when yeah. did you get to know Klaus? And yeah. since you've had a really close um, relationship well, with
1: him, well, of course, who knew he was the arranger on all the Joe Beam records, right? So I knew that, and then uh, the like I told you, the record that I played incessantly growing up, Bill Evans with Symphony Orchestra, arranged by Klaus Ogerman. and he play, he took all the uh, you know classical things like Siciliano and. Uh, by Bach and Pavan by Foray and all these classical pieces and he um, just recreated them in a beautiful way and um, I loved it. I don't know why I loved it or even I wasn't even old enough to know why I loved it but uh, I just sought him out and then um, at some point I met him. I think it was when he was doing one of his Michael Brecker records. He was doing it here in town and somehow I I think maybe Chuck DeMonaco said, hey, I'm doing it. You can come with me. And I think I went to one of the sessions and got to meet him. So then I started being in touch with him. And then when he would come to town, he would tell me he was recording. And he, the last time I saw him, he was doing the last Diana Crowell record. And I was there for that. And um, uh, yeah, he's great. And he's written so much concert music that you probably aren't even aware of that he has financed himself and gone over to to London to pay for uh To just make sure it 's recorded, so i he would send me scores of that, and i'd look at those and um He also did some pieces for the mancini institute and um oh that was a that was a big thing for me i don 't know if George caldrelli's still here, but uh There you are. Uh, One of the highlights of my life was uh, getting asked to be, it was the Jack Elliott and Alan Ferguson New American Orchestra back in the 80s, and I got, probably the token woman, I don't know, but they asked me to write a piece, which I did, and um, on the same bill was um, George Calandrelli's Concerto for Orchestra with Eddie Daniels. Yeah. Did I, what did I say? Well, Concerto for Clarinet and Orchestra. And... um, that on the bill was Jeremy Lubbock and George Calandrelli and the Swingle Singers and Klaus Ogerman and me. And boy, was I in good company. I met George that night and um, been a friend and fan ever since. So here's to you.
2: Yes, I see what I have.
1: No, fortunately, that was the, that's the good thing about my arranging work. No one's ever asked for a mock-up. Sometimes I have, uh, well, with Natalie Cole, I went to her rehearsal studio and I actually played piano for her and picked keys and did that and kind of got a, actually, you know, um, they didn't give me any direction. They just said, do your thing, which was great. Here's a Conrad story I wanted to share because I don't know if it's going to come up, but I think sometimes people want to know, what's it like being married to Conrad Pope? And what does he do for your music? You know, does he, uh, does he actually write your music for you? No, he, d- he doesn't write my music for me. But uh, on the Natalie Cole thing, he, uh, he, I said, hey, you know, we, we both work in adjacent rooms in the house and we, we like to play stuff for each other. So I played him something. It must have been Here's That Rainy Day. And he said, now go back in your room and don't come out until you dig a little deeper. Or some words to that effect. No, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Isn't that good? And Great. and I did. I did. I went back and I did dig a little deeper. He was right. And I came up with whatever I came up with, which won a Grammy. So I guess he was right. Oh, well, th- the lyrics definitely play a part now. I, you know, I used to never listen to lyrics because, you know, who cares, right? <laughs> but... I think Mark Murphy kind of turned me around in in the because he made me listen to the lyrics, you know, and and um, I, shame on me for not having done that before. In any arranging arrangement I did before that, um, because you should always listen to the lyrics because they really do, and and they the the singers appreciate that when you do that because then they if you do something musical as a reflection they 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 get it, you know.
2: So what's next? And what are you working on now?
1: Well, I'm throwing this party for my, no.
2: No. (laughs) I know, I'm picking up the carpool.
1: Yeah, I have four (laughs) kids, I mentioned that. For all you women out there, don't forget to have kids. I just wanna add that because um, that was also one of my, um, I never thought I was gonna have kids. I thought I was gonna be a career woman my whole life, either in television or then in music, Um, and I watched Jim D. Pasquale throw the scores up after one of his sessions, and say, now what? <laughs> and he, sa- he said to me, you know, you got to have more in your life than just music. And I didn't really believe him, but then after a while I thought, yeah, you know, you're right, um, because you can sit for a long time waiting for the phone to ring, and, and you're so, you know, victimized by that. I wanted to be a little proactive, so I, I made a conscious decision that I, it's time to get married, and get serious about this. And then someone said, you should have a child. What, me? You know, and I hadn't planned on it. And, but I thought, well, I don't want to miss anything. So I guess I'll have one. And there she is. She was so great that I went out and had three more. So I've got four kids now. And um, so I'm busy as a mom and I'm busy as a wife, but um, I've been really busy the past um, few months because I uh, just did some charts for Madeline Peru, who's going on the road to Europe, and they're adding orchestra, so I got to do that. And then um, I, or Arturo Sandoval, I worked for him, because George Calandrelli turned it down. Thank you, George. <laughs> <laughs> I worked for him on uh, uh, his last record, and so now he's doing something uh, with a singer from Peru, and I'm working on that. And that's recording in about a week, and we're doing it here in L.A. Thank you. That's really great. And, um, and uh, I'm just, as I mentioned, Till Broner just called and said, I've got this movie project. I need you to write some music, like really right now. Uh, I, and I never say yes immediately because I'm always, to, to tell you the truth, I'm always scared to death when the phone rings. I don't know about any of you guys out there, but when I get a job, I am scared and I don't think I can do it. And that's just a pattern of mine. Like I did it last time, but that doesn't mean I, I can pull it off this time. So I never say yes immediately. I was like, "Let me get back to you." So I checked it out and I thought, "Oh, I I could take a crack at this." So anyway, I just finished a movie uh, project with him that's recording in Berlin in a couple days, and um, and I wrote a trumpet concerto, which is floating around out there, and I'm hoping to get that performed um, soon. And I don't know. I got a Grammy nomination this year for working with Richard on uh, an arrangement I did for him and the London Symphony. Uh, it was a tribute to Dimitri Tiomkin and his daughter Whitney sang Wild as the Wind. And um, I got to write a beautiful, uh, I mean, I, I got to work with the beautiful London Symphony Orchestra, write for them. That was great. Um, so anyway, I'm waiting for the phone to ring is the answer to your question. What am, what am I doing next? <laughs> did I leave anything out?
2: No, that's quite a bit, I think. So are there any other questions that we can... I see a hand back there.
1: No, I think that I lost the hunger to prove it all the time in the music world and in the professional world because I wanted to be home with my kids, really. And um, so I lost a little of my drive temporarily, I would say. You know, Now that they're older and they hate me, I'm back at it. <laughs> I had to make that joke at your expense sweetie. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, she's gone away to college and she likes me a little bit more, so that's that's a good thing. Um but uh I don't know. I think it's it's yeah, being a woman uh, and juggling it all is is challenging and um and if you didn't if you completely ignored your ki- child to focus on your career, you'd be a bad mother. You know that. So that thing about having it all is is true. You can have it all, but there's something has to pay the price. However, that said, my mother did it all, and she did it great. She had a career. She raised three kids. She was happily married to my dad, who wasn't easy, and um, it, she was my role model. She still is. And, and my mom also, by the way, I just want to add, when, I, when I'm really down and I think oh, the music today is just so bad, and there's no place in it for me. And my mom will go, it's going to turn around. I know, it's all cyclical. I know, it's coming back, good music's coming back. And she says it with such conviction that I actually believe her. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, orchestration. I'm sitting next to the king of orchestration, so I hardly, it's, it's, I hardly get to call myself that. But for show business purposes, I call myself an orchestrator because I did work on Argo and Life of Pi, two Oscar nominees. Um, But, uh, yeah, I got a chance to do some orchestration for Joel McNeely when I was, you know, uh, needing work. And um, that was, you know, Dave Sloniker wasn't available uh, wherever he is. Thank God you guys are busy because I've gotten some breaks, but anyway, um, it was fun and uh, that, was, that opened up another door for me. And then um, since I met Conrad, in fact that's how we met, um, I, I'll tell the story in case you want to, does anyone want to know how we met? Yeah. 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 It's only a tribute to how great he is. Um, I was looking for work, I had these four little kids, I needed to support myself and I wasn't getting any composing gigs. and thinking, uh, I don't know when I'm going to get a composing gig or an arranging gig, so maybe I can be an orchestrator. So I was given a list of about 10 people to call, and seven of them never returned my call. And the eighth and ninth said, uh, get out of town. This is a closed shop, and we don't really want any more people to compete with us. I didn't realize that was a whole you know, group of people that make their living doing that, and they didn't want any competition. And the tenth one was Conrad, and God bless him, he called me back. And he uh, took me out to coffee, and he said, you know, why do you want to do this? You want to take it from there? He was nice to me, that is the, that's the bottom line, but take it from there.
2: Well, no, is that, uh, like I've said, Is that I've, I've been approached uh, throughout my life. Um, and God bless everyone that's ever hired me, and I'm, I'm really happy. Uh, but first and foremost, the reason I returned her call is that uh, I, the only reason I have anything today is because of Arthur Morton. Uh, because out of all the millions of cards and phone calls and everything else, it only takes a few people to change your life. And in my case it was Arthur Morton, and I've always figured I could never pay him back by there's nothing I could do for his career, just like there's nothing I can do for most of the people I work for. I can't how can I show my appreciation? I can simply be as open as he was to me, to others, and that's what I try to do. Is that's the only way I can pay back the people that have helped me is to try to be helpful. So therefore, when Nan Schwartz, and who, uh, when I came to town 25 years ago, was, uh, really, a, a quite a big noise, and still is a big noise, and is a great musician, and, uh, one, musician to musician, as they say, you sit there and you go, uh, this girl's the real deal. She can, she can hear, she can play, she can do it all. And so, that's always great respect. And so she was a great composer, and so she called me up to do this, and she actually gave me the, generally when people call me to say that they want to be an orchestrator, I always go, no, you don't. I, I'm thinking that. You actually want to be an astronaut or compose. One of these two impossible <laughs> dreams. So <clears throat> but let's sort of get to the, to the real uh, crux of things. And so she gave me the first truthful uh, answer I ever received about orchestration, is that she said, I want to be home next to my kids. I want to have to stay at home and not meet with directors, which all seems quite reasonable. Um, but I told her that she was too good and that she really didn't know what orchestration was and that was actually very tedious and she should not do it. And I think that uh, she sort of, uh, she took my advice uh, under, we could go into more detail, but one of the things that you asked about how she orchestrates. Alexander Desplat, uh, when he, when Nan works, um, like on this, like the last thing, Alexander likes what Nan does with his strings and that might seem sort of stupid you know if you think about MIDI stuff but this is a whole other discussion that we don't have time for today and not enough alcohol in the bar to fuel this conversation (laughs) but what Alexander loves is that he's actually an excellent he's a great musician guys a really good musician and what he likes is that Nan whenever she orchestrates She makes great parts, and if you've ever looked at some MIDI sketches, it's clear that the hands move where the ear doesn't go. The the hand moves where instruments don't go. The hand moves where sometimes no one would want to go. And it still sounds all okay because it's these block chords. So Nan is terrific. And this is the reason Alexandra will ask for her in certain specific kinds of cues. She is terrific in making great parts. Showing her background with her mom, and if, if you ever have the uh, great privilege to come over for Christmas Eve at the uh, Schwartz household and you hear th- this entire family singing, and, and you'll know where she got her affinity for doing great parts. But that's if Voice you... Voice leading. Vo- yeah, what, a, what an old-fashioned concept. But that's that's what she does do, uh, and that's what I would say is unique about her orchestration and what is treasured by the people that do give her a call to orchestrate for them in this day of of MIDI stuff where it just seems like, well, oh, what the hell do you do? Again, it's such a great thing to know that she does such great arrangements and part of the package, and I guess many of you are living this great, the dream of today, uh, today, of where they go, could you make the score and do the parts? How hard can it be? Don't you have a computer? And you sort of go, well, yeah, but you know, I'm not, you know, the, the worst thing you can ever do is write a part where it goes to the end of the page and it turns after counting eight bars rest and it goes solo. <laughs> and that's, that's what can happen with your computer. But that's it. I, I digress. <clears throat> so she's far too modest. So in any case, that's, that's kind of how we met. And then the only thing, any other questions? Before I ask one last question of Nan Schwartz, yes sir and, and I'll jump in just simply because in my rather checkered career uh, in this town, I've done almost everything one can do, and uh, when Nan was writing um, in the heat of the night, I was working at jo Ann Kane Music service as a proofreader, and Liz Finch will appreciate this and can test and can attest to this is that um, we down when you're working in Nibelheim, as I call it, is that you get to see, you work for everybody, you see every composer from the greatest to the smallest, from the largest to whatever, and you get to have a real appreciation of really who is the professional. And of course, one can always say, J- Nan is like John Williams in this degree, is that I recall, and with the heat of the night, uh, you know, so some bluesy harmony and everything else, she was, uh, the scores were always pristine, and perfect there was never a wrong note it was always delivered early and you know just like nan will tell you only this is why i think it's like a woman and pardon me for being sexist is that she said no oh, when i did uh, when i was working i would say well i have 4 days to write the score so i better write it in 3 just in case my car breaks down <laughs> wow you know, I, I mean, most guys I know would go, I've got four days to write it. Um, I won't start writing till, I got two days to waste. <laughs> so that's pretty good. And so, in any case, uh, as one of the little people, I can say that when you work for composers when they are extraordinarily professional, they deliver it, that they do their job so that you do your job, you sit there and you go, now this is a pretty decent living and it's really great to have somebody that no matter what their position is they take it quite responsibly always acquit themselves professionally and make everything go well for everyone concerned and that's actually as i don't have to tell all the working professionals i see in this room it's not always the thing that you find out in fact how many times have we all been uh, like i said i when i first started out in the business i kept going Hmm, I'm going to have a heart attack, uh, you know, meeting people at 3 a.m. to get their scores and whatnot. So in any case, yes, thanks, Jim. Nan is the consummate professional, just even like with this. Yeah, but I did thing.
1: look good at three in the morning. Yes, I? exactly.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. I know.
2: Well, well, so thank you all. I thank Nan Schwartz for coming today. If there are no other questions,
1: well, I just want to say uh, we didn't play any of my music, and I'm, that's probably better because I would be embarrassed to sit through and watch you watch your faces as you're listening to it. But if you're interested in any of my music, you can go to my website and hear it all in its entirety illegally. You know, cues that I shouldn't have put up there, all completely there, and musicians that want to be paid now, Ron and people like that. Or how come I, you know? So anyway, you're all, you're all represented there in the music, and I thank you, and um, thanks for, I hope we get to work together soon, all of us. Yeah. Thank you.
2: And it's nanschwartz.com. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn-Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.